If you have a Bible, do grab it like we talked about earlier and make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you don't have uh, a Bible with you, there's a black card back one around you. Um, so we're going to be in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 13, in the black card back ones around you. That's page 264. So if you just want to use one of those uh, for ease, it's going to be on page 264, 2 Samuel chapter 13. While you're getting there, have you ever had one of those mornings that just spirals out of control, right? It's just, I mean, it's very typical. It's a Monday type deal and one thing happens and then it just leads to another and it just leads to another and it spirals out of control. Uh, I remember several years ago, um, it, was in, it was fall break. Matter of fact, I guess it was 2012 because it was uh, the year that Eden had been born. And it was fall break, and it had been a hard summer with her in the hospital for so long. Um, and so we just wanted to get out of, out of town. And so she was doing relatively well. Um, you know, she'd had three surgeries. She was on a lot of medications, but she was doing relatively well. So we wanted to get out of town because we hadn't had that opportunity. And so we decided to go to Gatlinburg. And so if you've ever traveled with a baby, you know you literally have to take half of your belongings. You pile all those in, all right? So we've got all that, but it's not just... We had, we had four kids, seven and under, so we had all this stuff piled in there, and then we had all this extra medical equipment in there, and so we've got, you know, racks, like, with poles for holding stuff that are crammed all in there, and so getting out there and packing the van was like a crazy Herculean effort, and so you've got everything, you know, you're putting it in there, and the back trunk, you're putting things in, and, and you've got to be real quick holding it, holding it, you know, try to shut it so it doesn't chop your arm off, but also so everything doesn't fall out. So you get all that stuff in there. Everything's crammed in the middle as well. And so trying to get the kids buckled in, you know, you, you've got to like kind of become a caver and, and go spelunking and climb through different things to get back there and buckle them in. So you get them buckled in, but then you know, uh, I got to go potty right before you leave. So you got to get them unbuckled, take them back in. All right, it's October. I'm already sweating at this point. But bring them back out, get them loaded back in, finally get everything done. I mean, it, it's been going on for a while now. Get everything done, hop down into the seat, just finally ready to take off. Hit the key, click, 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 click. Won't crank. So then, all right, I've got to get the cables out. Where are the cables? The cables are in the well. So I've got to take everything out. Get down into the well, get the cables out, and then, you know, get my truck. So I'll pop the hood, start hooking up. Cables aren't long enough. So now I've got to get my truck, get the keys in the truck, turn it around, back it up, so I can try to, you know, get it, get even the cables will reach. So I'm doing this super fast. I'm frazzled, and so I jump out, I turn the truck around, and I start backing up, and I'm only concerned to get my, like, the hoods even. So that's the only thing I'm looking at. I'm looking at the hood of the, of the, of the van, and I'm backing up, backing up, bam, right into the garage door. So I cave that thing in. Run inside, kick it out a couple of times so it won't look, you know, too terrible while we're gone. And then run back out, get everything cranked up again. Finally, we get out of there. We go, and we, and we go to Gatlinburg. Just, I mean, just something that just spiraled. It just, one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. Finally, when we got back, actually, this is kind of a side note, we got back, and I'm rinsing out something, and I, I go to turn the spigot on, it breaks off in my handle, or in my hand. The handle breaks off in my handle, so the water's running underneath the house, I, I called uh, Ron Gunner. He came over and helped me out and whatnot. But just one of those things, just things spiral out of control. One thing leads to another and leads to another and leads to another. And it's this great big mess. Very often, that's how sin works. Sin begets sin. And it begets more sin. And it begets more sin. 
And that's exactly what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. We see this phenomenon where sin begets more sin, and then they try to fight sin with more sin, and it begets sin, and it begets sin. And so it's this story of sin and the consequences of sin. And it all began with David. His sexual assault of Bathsheba that we looked at two weeks ago. And then his murder of her husband. And if you remember back to two weeks ago, you remember David repented. And he was forgiven by God. But there were still consequences for his actions. And so I want to make sure you understand, as, as Christians, we are not punished for our sins. Okay, Jesus took that. He absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross for our sins. So he took the punishment. We don't take the punishment. He took that. So we're not punished for our sins. There's, not, there's none of it left to pay. Jesus paid it all. But that doesn't mean that all the consequences of our sin are necessarily gone. I mean, for example, just to kind of give you a visual example... When my brother walked into my room and put the barrel of a BB gun that he had pumped several times up on my bare leg, no jeans, no pants, and said, tell me I won't pull the trigger. And I said, you won't pull the trigger. Bam! And he shot me, right? And I had to flick it out with like the nail of my pinky. I forgave him eventually, all right? And actually he had to wind up forgiving me because I blackmailed the heck out of him. So I had to get forgiveness as well. That's a, another story for another day. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is like, I forgave him, but the massive bruise that was on my leg for like a month remained. So there's a consequence of what had happened. Forgiveness had happened, but this consequence remained. You couldn't just undo the consequence of it. And that's what happened in David's life. As we come to second, I mean, Nathan had told him in chapter 12, like there's going to be consequences to what you have done. And so as we roll into chapter 13 now, we begin to see how those consequences roll out in his family's life. Because sin spills over into those around us. And so the next five chapters that we enter into, we're going to see a level of family dysfunction that would make Jerry Springer blush. It's disgusting and it's disturbing. We're going to see incest. We're going to see rape. We're going to see murder. We're going to see theft. We're going to see more murder. We're going to see more sexual abuse and adultery and rape and more murder. Okay, sin begets sin. And that's the overarching theme of these chapters. That there are consequences to our sin. And that sin begets more sin. So that's the overarching thing. But what I want to focus in on today isn't so much that overarching theme. But rather I want to strongly condemn and call out Two particular forms of sin that we see in chapters 13 and 14. And that's the evil of sexual assault 
and the evil of apathetic fathers. And those are going to be your two points. I know there's three. I crossed one out. I told you I'm trying to do better by you. We won't go into that third one today. But the evil of sexual assault and the evil of apathetic fathers. So that's not number one and two. That's what we're going to dive into. And so that's why it's going to be a little heavy today. That's why I gave you that option. So let's look at this disturbing story in chapter 13. Page 264. Read along with me. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. So they have the same mom and dad. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, this is their half-brother, if you go back and look, chapter 3, loved her. Half-brother, half-sister. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, which is like someone who's mature of marrying age. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. And so what's happening here is David's oldest son, oldest son, so this is the, you know, the, the crown prince, Amnon, he's developed an perverted infatuation with his half-sister Tamar. And Amnon tries to describe it as love, but it's not love, it's lust, it's desire. And it's a complete objectification of a woman, not seeing her as a person, but as a thing to satisfy his lust, just like his daddy did with Bathsheba. And if that wasn't bad enough, this was his half-sister, So this is also incest. And he's going crazy because verse 2, he can't figure out a way to, quote, do anything to her. Until their cousin, Jonadab, steps in and helps Amnon fetch a plan to rape her. Just evil. And so verse 6. So Amnon lay down and he pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And then David sent to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. That's oddity number one. He wanted to eat. Now he's saying, I don't want to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. That's oddity number two. He sends everyone out. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber. That's his bedroom. This is oddity number three. Let's go into the bedroom. That I may eat from your hand. 
And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Now, let me just jump in and say something real quick. A patriarchal misogynist would look at this and try to spin it and blame Tamar for what's happening. Well, she shouldn't have gone there. She, she should have recognized, you know, these oddities and, um, you know, that, that he had sent his servants out and was asking her to come into his bedroom. She, she, she should have recognized this. So really, this is, this is her fault. She put herself in a dangerous situation. That's how a patriarchal misogynist, a.k.a. a jerk, I wish I could say it stronger than that in this room, but I won't today. That's how he would describe this situation. He would sinfully spin it that way. And I think in the Christian church, for a long time perhaps, we have ignorantly looked at things that way as well. In our ignorance and in our blindness. And that's wrong. Tamar has no fault in this. Absolutely none. This was her brother Amnon. Her brother, who's supposed to be her protector. She's supposed to be safe with him. And this is all him. Tamar has no fault here. And so for those of you perhaps in this room who've been sexually assaulted, it is not your fault. It is not your fault. It's not. Sexual assault should never happen. Ever. And so victims are never to blame. Ever. And so if that's you, don't walk in that. It is not your fault. These horrible men, Amnon and Jonadab, who helped him come up with the plan, they prayed on this sweet girl's service to her brother, caring for him while he's sick. And so verse 11. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. This is probably just a stalling tactic. But what Tamar is trying to call out here is that rape is bad enough. But this is more than rape. This is an outrageous thing. Right? In Hebrew, this is nebele, which literally means godlessness. And so through terror and screaming, she told Amnon that if he did this thing, he would become as one of the outrageous fools of Israel. And the force of what she's saying here, this, this actually happens several times. I'll call him out in, in, in the Hebrew. The force is kind of lost because she's playing off that word nebele with this outrageous thing and you would be an outrageous Fool, because it is more strongly translated than just fool, but actually an evil, 
pervert or godless wretch. And so Nebel will do Nebele, flagrant godlessness. It's a term that was applied to sexual offenses such as rape, homosexuality, and premarital sex. Flagrant godlessness. And so she's screaming at him, don't do this. You're my brother. Don't do this. This is what godless wretches do. Verse 14. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. In the Hebrew, the word with there is missing, which just brings the violence even more to the top. The Hebrew reads not he laid with her, but rather he lay her. He raped her. And then instantly, his so-called love turned to hatred. Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her. With a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. The psychological insight into this passage is profound. Because this fits the, I mean, this fits the pattern of sexual abuse. The man or the woman who's driven by His lust is not consumed with desire for a person, but for selfish pleasure. And once the pleasure is grasped, the person is discarded. Get up. Go. In verse 16, she pleads with him. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong... No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater... Than the other that you did to me. You're going to make it worse. Verse 17. He called the young man who served him and said. Put this woman out of my presence. And bolt the door after her. And so he wants nothing to do with her. And again we lose a little bit of the force in English. Because to help smooth out the translation. The English translators supply the word woman. But in Hebrew, what is translated, this woman here is just one syllable, and it's just this. Woman's not there, so it literally would read, send this out of my presence. Amnon would not even name her. He treated her as if she was impersonal trash to be taken to the curb. Put this out of my presence. And lock the door, almost like she had made some sort of pass at him. He's going to twist it and turn it. This, this action, this, this is the way Nebele acts. Flagrant godlessness. This is the way of Nebele and this is the way of sexual assault. This is the way of a hookup culture. This is the way of pornography. No care for a person. Just use that person. Abuse that person. And they're not really even a person. They're just a thing. And then get that thing, get this out of my presence. And what makes this whole episode so hideous is that everything that was abused in this episode was meant to be good. A brother and a sister should care for one another. 
that is good and right. Familial brothers and sisters, church brothers and sisters, we should care for one another. We should. We should be there for one another when someone's sick or in distress. But here, that good thing was violently abused. In a similar way, sex and the power of sexual desire is a good thing within the bonds of marriage. It's a means for strengthening, for, for love, for commitment, for binding together. But here, that good thing was abused into its opposite hatred. Because just think about love for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Read it super fast. Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own ways, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sexual assault is the 100% opposite of that. A man who doesn't wait for consent or listen to no is impatient and unkind. An adult who uses a child for sexual gratification is insisting on his own way. An arrogant and rude does not even begin to describe what the, the, the offense. The abuser never rejoices in the truth. He doesn't want the truth to be told. So he threatens and he lies about their wrongdoing. And a person who does sexual harm to another bears and believes nothing, hopes nothing, endures nothing, but takes and scars and walks away. That is the opposite of love. It's taking and using of another for our own gratification of not just sex, but power. This is never how God meant us to treat one another, and this is never how you were meant to be treated. So if you've experienced sexual abuse or violence, if you're, or in any way your voice and dignity has not been honored, God is here for your healing and your restoration. Unlike assaulters, God will not take from you. He's not after, like not trying to take anything from you. And he has no shame for you. Friend, it's not your fault. And you're not alone either. You're not alone. You have a church family, but you're not alone like, like this only happened to you. Statistics tell us that one in four ladies have been sexually assaulted. One in eight men have been sexually assaulted. So if we just play the numbers in a room like this, we're talking 30, 40 people. You're not alone. You're not alone. And there's help in Christ. Now, the healing process may take some time. You may have to go through not just one cycle, but multiple cycles. But help is available, and there are resources. There are resources we can help you with, we can connect you to. And God knows what you've been through. And He loves you, and He's patient, and He's kind to heal and restore you. He will do that. And so, like church, when it, when it comes to the sanctity of life, we are all about speaking up in defense of the helpless. But it is time that we start applying that not just to babies in the womb, 
but consistently across the board, including the innocent victims of sexual abuse who need a safe place to share their stories, and they need direction toward the emotional and spiritual healing that can be found only in Christ. Because the world doesn't provide that. The world's never provided a safe and secure place for those, from those who would abuse. And that's why the church must be that place. And listen, I get the negative headlines about the church. Now, not, not this church, but just the church in general. And they're deserved. Disgusting and horrible things have happened. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is possible, and beyond that, needed that the church be that place. And it's the responsibility of church leaders to make sure that the church is a haven where no one is touched inappropriately. And it's a refuge where hurting individuals can confide in a teacher, in a leader, in a pastor, in an elder, in an older friend. And shepherds must protect the sheep. And so that's why we have pages of policies about what we do and don't do in taking care of kids. Pages of policies. This has to happen always. This has to happen always. This has to happen always. And so listen, if for some reason your home is not a safe place, or your work, or your school, or your babysitter, or your coach, or your team, you need to know that we are here for you at Providence. And if you're a parent or a family member of someone who's been abused and you need guidance on how to come alongside that person to help the situation, we want to assist you as well. And if you're a victim of sexual abuse, if you feel afraid to speak and need someone with a heart of compassion who will listen, we will listen and we will believe you and we will come alongside you and help you as much as we can. This may mean helping to connect you with other counselors. I I, I don't know. But I do know, even though your circumstances may be really, really, really hard, they are not hopeless. They're not. Because Christ loves you. And I'm going to say that a couple of times because you need to know it and believe it. Christ loves you. Jesus Christ loves you. Like he really does. Second person of the Trinity, eternal God, loves you and can heal and restore and bind up and so run to him. Isaiah 43, 2 says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And so brother or sister who has been assaulted or anyone else who's just going through difficulty or suffering, you're walking in deep waters. But God walks with you. You're walking through fire, but God will not let the flames consume you. And so turn to him. Every day. Take his promises to heart every day. When a memory pops up, when every time you struggle, every time you feel your heart breaking under the weight of what has happened to you, ask him to help you, and he will. 
He can bear the weight of your troubles and heartaches because he also suffered at the hands of evil people. And he knows what a broken body and a broken heart feel like. And so turn to him. And church family, let's learn to speak out against the evil of sexual assault and all its related elements like harassment. Because it's never funny. It's always evil. And men, let's defend and honor and hold up our sisters in Christ. Now, all that begins with calling sexual assault for what it is. It is evil. But dear victims, it is not. It is not unovercomable. And even perpetrators, it's not unforgivable. And so if you're here today and your conscience is pricked, because you've done someone harm. Or even you wonder about that thing that you thought was okay. Maybe in fact it was using someone. Don't ignore that. Talk to God about it. Maybe confess it to a pastor or someone else you trust. But these are serious things. And straight up, if you've harmed a child, you'll be, re- you'll be reported. Period. It's the right thing to do and it's the law. But even if you've done something that isn't illegal or is maybe in the distant past at this point, that doesn't mean it's okay. And a confession can be the beginning of figuring out what restitution and justice and forgiveness and freedom might look like. But for all of these things, it means coming to Christ for healing. And so if you'd like to talk to someone this morning... I'm going to stay in this room. I'm not going to go out there. Elders will be at the doors. If you're a lady and you'd like to have a lady present as well, we will make that happen. Because Christ loves you. And we want to love you well, too. And we want to see Christ bring healing and wholeness to what evil has done. And so sexual assault and all its related elements, including harassment, is evil. There's one more thing in this text that's evil that I want to highlight quickly. And that's the evil of apathetic dads. The evil of apathetic dads. Because just to kind of Paul Harvey this and give you the rest of the story. Absalom finds Tamar broken and weeping. He finds out what Amnon did to her. And so he brings Tamar into his house and he cares for her for the rest of her life. Because Tamar, or because Amnon has trashed her. Her dad ignores her. There's not proper care. There's not proper restitution. And Absalom sets about a process to get revenge. Which two years later he will. He will murder Amnon. But the one person who, who could have stopped all this, sin begetting sin begetting sin, the one person who could have stepped in and stopped all this and brought justice was David. But though angry about it, as it says in verse 21, David did nothing. The one who stood up to the giant Goliath does nothing here to avenge his little girl. And it's awful. I mean, Amnon should have been punished and Tamar exonerated. But instead, because David is apathetic, Amnon is not held accountable. 
Tamar receives no help. And Absalom is handed a plausible excuse for revenge. And throughout David's continued apathy for the next, if you read it, seven years. Absalom comes to a place where he starts a coup to steal the throne from David and kill him. And those are, that's in the chapters to come. And again, all this happens because David is apathetic in the lives of his kids. And friends, that's evil. The greatest temptation a lot of us, I'm going to talk men, to men primarily, I'm going to talk to dads, those of you who might want to be dads. The greatest temptation we face a lot of times is not outright wickedness. But is a smoother and equally destructive path of apathy and inaction. Now, when you look around at the family situation in the U.S. today, we are grieved by the failure of fathers to fulfill the role that God gave us. And sometimes it does manifest in outright abuse. We see that. You see that. But far more often it manifests in absent dads. Men who would rather know what's happening on ESPN or a stock exchange than in the lives of their sons and daughters. I mean, straight up for a lot of us, if we showed the same level of apathy at work that we show to our families, we would have been fired a long time ago. And so dads, invest and be there. And love your kids by being interested in what they are interested in. Like this is something I'm trying to grow in. They recognize this about myself. I love sports. I love college football. Georgia Tech just hired a new coach, and I've been sinfully enthralled with that. Truly. I, have, I got the report of screen time usage on my phone this morning, and I was appalled. But that's what I like, right? I like sports. I like hiking. I like farming. I like sleeping. Like, it's a hobby. I love it. It is great. But my girls are getting into some things that I've never really been into before. But now I need to learn to be. Why? Because they are. They are. And because whatever is important to them, I want to be important to me because they're important to me. And I want them to know that. And so I've got work to do. Honest. And some of you probably do as well. And so let's do that work. Let's not be absentee dads like David was here. Let's spend time and let's invest in preaching to myself as I just admitted. And many of us in here, let's put the phone down and turn it off and put it away. 20 years from now, we will not give a rip about what's going on on a particular day on Facebook 411, which is the devil anyhow. The 411, no one's 411. My gosh, that is the devil. Stay away from that place. I call it the vortex of evil. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Some of you are just now getting that, but that's all right. Well, we won't give a rip about what's happening. But we will give a rip about what we missed in our kids' lives. 
we have 18 to 21 years max to invest in their lives. Like, as parents. And so let's invest. Let's not be apathetic. Apathetic is evil. And the consequences, like they were for Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, are often tragic. Someone's like, no, I've already blown it. Join the club. But here's the good news. God is merciful and gracious. He is kind and patient. He's forgiving and restoring. And as I said last week, where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And that goes not just for, the, for errors in being a dad, like I've made, but also the pain in being a victim. And so for a believer, even as we, again, said last week, Christ steps into whatever mess you're in. And he doesn't always calm the storm immediately, but he does step into it. He does climb into the boat with you, and he stays there. He doesn't leave or forsake those who are his, ever. And so, dear friends, Christ, if you are in Christ, he is with you. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about, is it not? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And he is. And so as we approach Christmas, may we know that, may we feel that, and may we reach out and get help if needed. Whether as it relates to sexual assault or being a dad. Because your kids are worth it. You are worth it. And God is worthy of all of our worship. Let's pray. Father, it's a heavy topic when you talk about these things and you see the reality lived out in Scripture. That the Bible is not sanitized. The Bible lays out life in all its wickedness and ugliness. And that sexual assault is not some new thing invented in the 21st century, but you have been describing it since the Bible was being written. You can go back to Genesis chapter 34. And the rape of Dinah. And it has always been wrong. It has always been evil. It has always been opposed to your good design. And so, Father, forgive us for for being apathetic towards sexual abuse. For not listening well. For questioning first. And help us as a body to, to change. And Father, I pray for those who have, for the many, Lord, who have been victims of sexual abuse. And Father, I pray that you would continue the healing 
teaching them and reminding them of their identity. Our identity is not what we do or what's been done to us. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And I pray you would give them the courage to step out and get help if needed. And Father, I pray just for dads in here that you would help us. Help us, God, to be the kind of dads that you've called us to be in your word. who rejoice that our quiver of children is full, if that is the way you've rolled it out for us, and that we shoot those arrows into the world for your glory. Now, God, help us with all of this, because we are needy, needy people. And our hope and our trust is in you, our wonderful and merciful Savior. In Christ's name we pray.